Five Americans are freed from Iran, much to the joy of their families, but the U.S. agreement to release them is drawing criticism. It includes a provision to give Iran access to about $6 billion. Our story is coming up on this Monday, the 18th of September. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead today, Illinois became the first state to completely eliminate cash bail, this after years of intense debate. We'll check in with a former Navy SEAL who's about to start his senior year at Yale. He started his freshman year when he was 52. Freshman James Hass was pretty scared, but I don't know that he was all that humble with his opinions about the world. What it's been like to attend an elite school after a long military career coming up. 67 degrees in Boston, Wall Street numbers are ahead. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Five Americans detained for years in Iran are coming home. A pivotal moment captured on a tarmac in Doha, Qatar, where the group emerged from a plane today and were met by officials preparing to get them back to the United States and reunited with family. NPR's Peter Kenyon has more. The Americans now free include Imad Sharji, Murad Tabaz, and Simak Namazi. Namazi was the longest-held American by Iran since the 1979 Islamic Revolution, having been arrested in 2015. In a statement, Namazi says his joy at soon being able to see his family again is, quote, laced with sorrow for the people still in Iranian prisons for, in his words, reporting the truth, for worshiping their God, for being a woman, for nothing. Namazi adds that, quote, as a hostage, 2,898 days of what should have been the best days of my life were stolen from me and supplanted with torment. Despite the prisoner swap, relations between Washington and Tehran remain tense over Iran's nuclear program, among other things. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. The U.S. is granting clemency to five Iranians in U.S. custody. Washington has also agreed to unfreeze $6 billion of Iranian funds that were held in South Korea on the condition the funds only be used for humanitarian purposes. Expert Vali Nasser, professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, says the prisoner's release coincides with Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi's visit to the U.S. this week. He's coming to the United States for the United Nations General Assembly and I think he was very keen to have this finished uh, before he arrived uh, so that uh, the, the continued holding of the prisoners would not become the dominant topic of his visit. Today, Raisi suggested the deal could be used to build trust between the United States and Iran. Comedian Russell Brand has postponed a series of tour dates in the U.K. after four women publicly accused him of sexual assault. NPR's Anastasia Siulka says he has also been dropped by his management company. Russell Brand was supposed to finish a UK tour with appearances in Windsor, Wolverhampton and Plymouth. Those dates have been postponed after four women said that Brand had allegedly assaulted them between 2006 and 2013. Brand has denied all the allegations in a video posted to YouTube saying all his encounters have been consensual. After the report was published, London's Metropolitan Police announced it had received another accusation about a sexual assault Brand allegedly committed in 2003. In further fallout, Brand's publishing deal with the imprint Bluebird has been suspended and his now former management company announced it has dropped him from its roster. Anastasia Tsilikas, NPR News, New York. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The government center garage demolition in Boston is likely to make Green Line riders' trips more complicated as of today. The MBTA is shutting down the stretch of the Green Line between Government Center and North Station. That's the part that runs underneath the garage. As WBR's Rob Lane reports, it is a safety precaution. The Green Line has shut down several times in the area since the summer of 2022 when the death of a construction worker exposed structural issues with the garage. But this closure is scheduled to last nearly a month. Mark Drazen of the Metropolitan Area Planning Council tells WBUR's Radio Boston decision makers are right to prioritize safety, even if the timeline leaves commuters frustrated. I think the T for a variety of reasons, the developer, the city and everyone else is using a very cautious set of standards here. And in the long run, I think that's probably for the best. The T is advising passengers to use the orange line to circumvent the closure. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. A Massachusetts resident is one of 12 plaintiffs suing the U.S. Justice Department to end its terrorist watch list. The lawsuit is spearheaded by the Council on American-Islamic Relations. The group says about 98% of the names on the watch list that's used to screen travelers are Muslim names. Massachusetts resident Ahmed Mirzai, one of the plaintiffs, says he's been searched and interrogated while traveling and denied a state gun permit. Saturday marked 20 years since the watch list began. UMass Memorial Health is offering free medical training for those who treat opioid use disorder in Central Mass. The trainings for a wide array of health care providers. The goal is to increase access to treatments, including overdose prevention, in a primary care setting. Health experts say when treatment's offered in a primary care office, it can lower mortality, minimize stigma, and improve health overall. Three foundations are funding the project through a $153,000 grant. Temperatures should be about 60 degrees, not too much lower than they are right now. Overnight tonight, a lot of rain between now and tonight. Then for tomorrow and Wednesday, should be nothing like today. Sunny, breezy, dry both days, not too warm. Temperatures in the low to mid-70s. 67 degrees now in Boston at 4.07. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Five Americans who had been detained in Iran are on their way home, and family family members are expressing relief and joy. Earlier today, they were flown out of Iran to Qatar, where some of them were seen emerging from their flight, getting their first taste of freedom as U.S. and Qatari officials greeted them, sharing some embraces and smiles. The deal to end their release, though, is facing some criticism here in Washington because Iran is getting access to about $6 billion. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. For lawyer Jared Genzer, it was the call he's been waiting for. His client, American businessman Siamak Namazi, who had been jailed for over eight years and faced torture in Iran, was seen on video stepping off a plane in Doha. A moment later, he picked up the phone and called me, and uh, I picked up the phone and he said, Jared, I'm finally free. And for me, it was uh, the culmination of a whole lot of work and effort by so many people all around the world over so many years. And I'm just so grateful um, today that uh, the Namazi family nightmare is finally over. Genzer says Siamak Namazi, who was passed over in several previous prisoner swaps with Iran, was feeling overwhelmed. You know, overwhelmed by the fact that this day had finally come. And frankly, I mean, he's missed some of the best years of his life. You know, he'd like to get married and have kids. He... Uh, 
you know, uh, obviously needs to figure out what he's going to do for a job and what is he going to do and, and how is he going to recover from this uh, traumatic experience. In addition to Namazi, four other Americans were released. They include environmentalist Murad Tabaz and Imad Shargi, an Iranian-American businessman. The Biden administration did not identify the two others, a man and a woman. Namazi's mother and Tabaz's wife were traveling with them. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he had an emotional call with all of them from Qatar. It's very good to be able to say that our fellow citizens are free after enduring something that I think it would be difficult for any of us to imagine, that their families will soon have them back uh, among them, and that um, in this moment, at least, I have something very joyful to report. The Biden administration has faced a lot of criticism for the deal since it involved not just swapping prisoners, but also helping Iran get access to about $6 billion in its oil revenue. Administration officials argue that they got the best deal they could. The five Iranians who were given clemency in the U.S. justice system were mostly convicted of or facing charges of sanctions violations. They were, in the words of one U.S. official, small potatoes. And the money is Iran's. Here's how Secretary Blinken put it. This involved the um, access by Iran to its own money, money that uh, had accumulated in uh, Korean Bank as the result of oil sales that Iran made, which were lawful at the time those sales were made. The $6 billion is now in a bank account in Qatar, and the U.S. says Iran can only use it for food, agricultural products, medicine, and medical devices. The U.S. says it can be cut off again at any time. But speaking on Fox News Sunday Morning Futures, Republican Congressman Michael McCall said the administration is naive. We all know money's fungible. And then the president of Iran just came out and said, I'm not spending however I want to. And of course he is. And guess where it's going to go? It's going to go into terror proxy operations. It's going to go into building their nuclear, you know, their nuclear, not defense system, but offensive system. Secretary Blinken says the administration will keep up the pressure on Iran, and he's working with other countries at the United Nations General Assembly this week to come up with an agreement on ways the international community can punish countries that take hostages. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, New York. One of the nation's newest and most expensive fighter jets has gone missing. The pilot ejected over South Carolina yesterday after what military officials call a mishap. The plane kept going and nobody knows where it went. Jay Price of member station WUNC joins me to talk about this missing plane that has already launched a thousand memes. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me. Okay, before we get to what happened, tell me more about this jet. What do we need to know? Yeah, the the F-35 Lightning II is our military's newest stealth fighter. It's often said in certain conditions that it shows up on radar, for instance, about as well as an object the size of a golf ball. It has the latest advanced systems. I mean, pretty much what you would expect. Navigation, radar, radar jamming, targeting, all the modern stuff. And this one was a version built especially for the Marine Corps and could actually take off and land vertically. Really valuable for fighting where there's not even the most basic of runways. The Marines got their first ones in 2015 and the Air Force and Navy began getting them later. And the F-35 is expected to be crucial for U.S. and NATO air power for the next few decades. Okay, so the military's newest stealth fighter, so stealthy that they can't find it, what happened? Yes, really stealthy. Um, 
what triggered all the memes and jokes was one of the first military one of the military's first notices to the public i mean they don't know what happened so far the military put out this tweet or an x now i guess now that twitter's bluebird has also gone missing right. it put out a tweet saying essentially hey we lost one of these things if you find it call this number which of course within minutes meant social media exploded with memes like a photo of the plane getting the missing golden retriever treatment with its photo stapled <laughs> to a utility pole right. and jokes like if the military is so woke like the hard right likes to say how were they so unaware to let this plane sneak away can i just pause you for a second it, just to just to stress the u.s military which possesses the most state-of-the-art communications radar etc on the planet they they're asking the public to call a hotline yeah, I mean, yes. I call. I actually called one of them, and it was just the public affairs office for the planes unit. I actually called it and talked to this cheerful young corporal, and he just read me a news release and couldn't say much more. He just said, it's been a crazy day. Oh, I bet it has. I, I, there is a serious side to this, right? The The pilot is safe, but I guess they're worried about danger to people on the ground? Yeah, I mean, that would be the first thing. You know, when you hear the pilot of Jackson, it's, you know, he's being treated, it sounds like he's probably going to be okay. But then you do immediately think of what happens where it hits. And this late in the game, it, it seems like maybe that won't be an issue. But all this does raise serious questions. I talked with Ward Carroll, who has a popular YouTube channel on military topics. Now, Carroll isn't just any guy online. He was longtime crew on Navy F-14s, which you might remember from the original Top Gun movie. Then he was spokesman for the V-22 Osprey program, another really complex aircraft. Ward gets the joke, but says this incident raises real questions. These little things can get extrapolated to big things. So what else have we lost? What else don't we know? We don't know where our own airplanes are. How do we know where the Chinese airplanes are or ships? And Carol is as baffled as anyone uh, else about how this plane with all its cutting edge systems could be so hard to find. That is WUNC's Jay Price. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Starting today, judges in Illinois can no longer order people accused of crimes to pay money to get out of jail while awaiting trial. A handful of states have eased rules around cash bail, but Illinois is the first to ban it completely. Studies show that cash bail disproportionately affects black, Latino, and low-income people. Chip Mitchell with member station WBEZ in Chicago has our story. Two years of intense public debate culminated this summer when the Illinois Supreme Court rejected constitutional challenges to the law. Today, criminal courts across the state are doing away with what they used to call bond hearings. At 12.30 will be what we call initial appearance hearings. On a recent panel, Cook County Circuit Judge Mary Marubio laid out plans for courthouses she helps oversee. She said judges will hold in-depth hearings on whether releasing a defendant would pose a safety threat or flight risk. Not too different from how we release people now. It's just that money will no longer be a condition of release. I'm excited. I feel like a, a baby has been born. That's LaVette Mays. She's been organizing against cash bail since her own criminal case that started with a 2015 fight with a family member. Mays was charged with aggravated battery. Um, my bail was set at $250,000, $25,000 to walk. I couldn't afford that bond. She spent more than a year in jail awaiting trial. A judge eventually lowered the bond and she took a plea agreement. But she says she lost her home and livelihood, and the jail time was rough on her two kids. Today, 
as Illinois ends money bond, Mays says she's relieved. <sighs> I feel like a low has been lifted because we finally got something that's going to help the black and brown community. Now I can sleep knowing that people just won't be able to be sent back to jail because they can't afford to pay bail. In suburban DuPage County, state's attorney Bob Berlin is not celebrating. He and most other county prosecutors in Illinois opposed the law's initial version. Even after he worked on amendments that toughened the law, Berlin says it still doesn't give judges enough discretion to jail pretrial defendants. But he's actually expecting a smooth transition this week. We're all professionals. We all have an obligation to follow the law whether we agree with it or not. Advocates are worried that judges will be skittish about freeing defendants without cash bail and could increasingly rely on ordering home detention with electronic bracelets as a substitute. A state agency is rolling out a new electronic monitoring program for defendants in 70 Illinois counties. That's not going over well with the Cook County Public Defender's Office, which represents defendants who can't afford to pay for a lawyer. Assistant Public Defender Colleen Gorman told reporters last week her clients who work in trades, like construction, might lose their jobs. The electronic monitoring program requires that every week, a few days before, they submit a letter from their boss saying what their hours are going to be that week and what locations they will be at. We know this is impossible. A plumber doesn't know whose plumbing's going to go out next week. Some research suggests that curtailing reliance on cash bail has had a minimal effect on public safety. That was the finding of a Loyola University Chicago study of four parts of the country. Starting today, all eyes will be on Illinois. For NPR News, I'm Chip Mitchell in Chicago. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. So nice to have you with us on this Monday afternoon here at 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 15 minutes, young Americans are known for being passionate about fighting climate change. But when it comes to voting, climate change does not poll especially important. That story and much more still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Inspire a whole new generation of learners with an education degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu. Wall Street had a lackluster day. The Dow and the Nasdaq ended the day just about where they began it. S&P gained less than a tenth of a percent. Bay State Health is the latest health care center in Massachusetts to reinstate a mask mandate. The Western Mass Health Group joins Cambridge Health Alliance in making the change. Bay State Health patients will have to wear a mask in patient rooms and care areas. It'll be optional, though, in common spaces such as hallways and cafeterias. The mask mandate for the facility comes as COVID cases rise in Massachusetts. State data recorded 2,700 new cases in the past week. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen. With a goal of delivering holiday catering, everyone will keep talking about. FreshCityKitchen.com And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org cars. 
gray and wet this afternoon. Could have another inch or so of rain before it comes to an end tonight. Overnight lows about 60. Tomorrow, a change in the weather. Should be mainly sunny and windy, just about 73 degrees. A little bit warmer on Wednesday and just as sunny, so dry weather is on the way. 67 degrees in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. DATAIKU.com. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. President Biden campaigned in 2020 on an ambitious climate platform. He carried that ambition into office, making major investments in the climate crisis. Still, as Biden and his campaign are hitting the campaign trail, they are being confronted by young voters' climate anxiety. Republicans are being asked how they plan to address climate change, too. And NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo is here to explain the ways that climate change is or isn't an issue for voters. Hi, Jimena. Hey, Juana. So, okay, you have been talking with voters who consider climate a big issue. Tell us, what have you been hearing? Well, both Democrats and Republicans that I spoke to do feel passionately about climate, whether it's preserving the planet for a future generation or increasing economic productivity. Here's Democrat Shiv Soen. It's not like the number one issue. It's like very high up there because climate, to me, intersects with pretty much everything else. And here's Republican identifying Alexander Diaz. Being born and raised in Arizona, like the environment and the climate and the weather, like all very important topics for me. You might remember Alexandra as the student who asked about climate during the first Republican primary debate. And I will say both Shiv and Alexandra might be climate voters, but they're not only climate voters. And that's something that I heard a lot. It's an important issue, but it's not the only issue. Okay, but I remember it wasn't really that long ago that climate change was not so much on the radar for most voters. How have you seen that change? Well, it has grown for both Democrats and Republicans for about the past decade. Polls generally show Democrats particularly rank climate as one of their top issues, if not the top issue. Republicans tend to rank it lower in importance, but young Republicans are seeing it as an issue of higher priority. That might be partly because the impacts of climate change have been more immediate, like wildfire smoke affecting air quality, record high temperatures, and rising utility costs that make climate a pocketbook issue. Okay, so that's what polling tells us, which, of course, polling is a snapshot in time that then informs party strategy. But what do we know, if anything, about how this translates to actually the way people vote? Mm -hmm. So despite signing sweeping legislation to address climate change, Biden isn't necessarily pulling in more votes yet on just that. In fact, a lot of younger climate activists are frustrated by some of his policies. Thousands took to the streets of New York this weekend, for example, to demand Biden do more on climate. A lot of them angry at his approval of the Willow Project, a major oil development project in Alaska. And they say that it's an example of the president walking back on his promises. Still, those that I was able to speak to said that they are likely to vote for Biden anyway, even if they're not happy with him. Anthony Lazowitz, director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, warns that the president shouldn't count on these voters, though, either. 
there is a block of voters who may, and of course our crystal ball is very cloudy, but who may decide either, well, most likely to just not vote, to stay home. And that would, of course, be incredibly damaging to his reelection prospects. Enthusiasm is low, especially among the youngest potential voters. For Republicans, though, it's becoming important to simply just talk about the issue. Having a position on climate won't lose you any voters, but not having a position on climate change will. That's Heather Reams with Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. She warns that conservatives should be could be leaving votes on the table in these close elections, so they need to be a part of the national dialogue. So if you're silent on the issue, where a lot of Republicans were, it's now becoming a detriment. Both parties have some work to do to appeal to these voters. Last thing, it sounds like it's kind of a mixed bag there when it comes to whether climate change is actually motivating voters. Is that how you see it? It is. You know, and turnout among young voters and Democrats can also make a difference in swing races. And we aren't just talking about presidential swing states, the House, state legislature and local government races where just a couple votes can make the difference. So climate change could still be a marginal issue. And we've seen marginal issues really matter in side elections. NPR's Jimena Bustillo. Thanks. Thanks. The most electrifying team in college football this season, it's the University of Colorado. The Buffaloes won just a single game last year. This year, they are already 3-0. They're the talk of the sporting world, thanks to their flashy new coach, Deion Sanders, and a whole new roster of players. The team's success has also been a huge boost to local businesses, as Colorado Public Radio's Tony Gorman reports from Boulder. Colorado coach Deion Sanders is making a believer out of everyone in the college football universe this season. What's up, boss? You believe now? You, you, hold on, hold on, hold on, oh no. Do you believe now? So much so, the CU home games are some of the hottest tickets around. For the first time in 27 years, season tickets are sold out, and that means the resale market is soaring. The nosebleed sections are going for hundreds of dollars and front row seats more than 15,000. Even students are having a hard time. CU freshman Eli Jason was one of the lucky ones. He won a student sports pass through a lottery. The best place in the country right now. Most hype in the world. No one knows what's happening right here besides what's happening in Boulder. The Buffaloes game Saturday against in-state rival Colorado State a thriller won by Colorado in double overtime was more like a Hollywood affair. The nation's top recruits, former NFL players, and celebrities all showed up. It's part of the prime effect. Sanders, known as Coach Prime, continues to garner national media exposure every week. The excitement and economic boom have always followed Sanders, when he coached Jackson State in Mississippi, the region saw a huge boost. The Tigers football team brought in $30 million to the city in 2021, almost double the season before the pandemic. Are you finding everything all right, ma'am? Yes. Okay, perfect. Boulder is already seeing it too. Where the Buffalo Roam, a souvenir shop, saw a huge spike in sales when Sanders was hired. Store manager Chandler Parker says they're constantly restocking CU merchandise. Essentially, since the first win of the season, our business has gone up at least, I would say, 50 to 60 percent on, especially like on game days. ESPN, and this was featured on ESPN this morning. 
Over on University Hill, a line pours out the door of the sink. The restaurant has been around for a century. Co-owner Chris Heinrich says he hasn't been this busy since he purchased the sink in 1992. And we started seeing people come in on Thursday night this week, even though it's a kind of a local game playing CSU. And, you know, we expect people to be around uh, all the way into Monday. Even Coach Prime is getting in on the action. He launched a line of custom-made sunglasses by Blenders last week that got a boost when Colorado State's coach criticized him. Sanders, who is known for wearing hats, hoodies, and sunglasses to his press conferences, responded by giving his players their own sunglasses. These are the shades. I'm <laughs> Sanders said Blenders made $1.2 million in sales in one day. Those shades came out just in time because Sanders wants his team to enjoy the spotlight. And as long as Coach Prime is at CU, Boulder will too. For NPR News, I'm Tony Gorman in Boulder. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. A laundromat owner in Aurora, Colorado, installed water-saving washing machines, and his customers abandoned him. A psychology researcher explains why some people are skeptical of green initiatives. That story is coming up. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBR events newsletter. Go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. And by the way, coming up in two weeks, two weeks from tonight, how sustainable fashion can help save the planet. We've got a flood watch in effect until the wee hours of tomorrow morning, thanks to all the rainfall today. Look for rain continuing until just about 10 o'clock tonight. Should be down around 60 overnight. Clearing up tomorrow with sunny skies, high temperatures in the low 70s. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. 2021 was a good year to invest in cryptocurrency. We had heard so many stories of people getting rich overnight on crypto that even like the craziest promises seemed kind of plausible. But then came 2022 and the trillion dollar crypto wipeout. We'll hear tales from the world of casino capitalism. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Five Americans held for years in Iranian custody are en route back to the U.S. after the Biden administration agreed to a prisoner swap and the release of billions in assets that were frozen by South Korea. The U.S. also agreed to release five Iranian prisoners. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken says the administration made some tough choices to get the Americans out. Today, their freedom the freedom of these Americans for so long unjustly imprisoned and detained in Iran means some pretty basic things. It means that husbands and wives, fathers and children, grandparents can hug each other again, can see each other again, can be with each other again. 
The release of nearly $6 billion in assets will be restricted to humanitarian uses in Iran. The exchange comes during ongoing disputes between the U.S. and Iran and the military buildup in the Persian Gulf. The Ukrainian military says it's retaken a key town in the eastern part of the country that Russia occupied back in January. Here's NPR's Joanna Kakissis with more about Ukraine and its limited but steady gains. Ukrainian forces say the eastern village of Klishchivka is now under their control. It's south of the frontline city of Bakhmut, which Russian forces captured in May after months of fighting. Ukraine says it's moving closer to retaking Bakhmut after securing the nearby village of Andrivka on Friday and now Klishchivka this weekend. Ukraine's latest counteroffensive has been going on since June. Some of Ukraine's western allies say it's moving too slowly. Ukraine says one reason is that the southern front line is heavily landmined. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Cave. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council is considering ways to tackle gun violence in the city. The council held a hearing today on an ordinance that would require Boston police to put together an annual report on how illegal guns are finding their way to the city. Council President Ed Flynn is pushing for a detailed report so policymakers can develop more effective strategies to reduce gun violence. Where it was sold, manufactured, imported, assembled, the date such firearm was seized or surrendered, and the date the date such firearm was last sold legally, whether the firearm was a ghost gun or a firearm created using a 3D printer. The council says 75% of guns used to commit crimes in Boston are not purchased in Massachusetts. Boston is getting a new professional women's soccer team for the first time in five years. The Boston Globe reports that the National Women's Soccer League has awarded an expansion franchise to a local woman-led ownership group. The group proposed refurbishing White Stadium and Franklin Park as part of the deal for use by both the team and the Boston Public Schools. The team will be playing in Boston in 2026. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Ed Markey is teaming up with the New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other lawmakers to try to convince the White House to create a civilian climate corps. They've asked President Biden to take urgent action to prepare an entire generation of workers for good-paying union jobs in the clean economy. The push comes on the 30th anniversary of the establishment of the AmeriCorps program. And Massachusetts is ranked healthiest state in the country for the third year in a row. That's according to a study from the Boston University School of Public Health. The study looked at factors including residents' access to food, health care, housing, and transportation. Researcher Kimberly Duke says Massachusetts ranked high despite the state's housing shortage and transportation troubles. It's looking at the, the cost of home values and the ratio of home value to income. It isn't really addressing right now issues that are happening with our public transportation or the driving housing costs. Duke says future studies will factor in transportation reliability and housing affordability. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And the forecast could have another inch or so of rain before it ends tonight. Overnight lows about 60. Tomorrow should be mainly sunny and windy, right about 73 degrees. A little bit warmer on Wednesday and just as sunny. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A few years back on the show, we introduced you to a college freshman by the name of James Hatch. He had just started at Yale, and he was struggling to fit in. I thought, man, I I really have no business being here. But then, you know, things progressed, and I, I could actually contribute. You see, Hatch was 52 years old. Unlike most of his Yale classmates who'd arrived straight from high school, Hatch had already had a full career as a Navy SEAL. That career ended after he was badly wounded in combat in Afghanistan. He enrolled in Yale in a program for non-traditional students. And when I first spoke with him in 2019, he was studying Homer's epic poem, The Iliad. And it was pissing him off, his words, because he felt it presented an unrealistic view of war and honor. Well, James Hatch has just started his senior year at Yale. He's on the line from New Haven. Hey, again. Hello, Mary Louise. Thanks for having me. Did you come around to the Iliad in the end? I did. In fact, I'm a humanities major, but if I had Latin and Greek, I think I might even want to be a classics major, but I can't meet that requirement. The concern that it was unrealistic in the way it presented war and honor, did you figure out it was wrong, you were wrong, or what changed? Oh, no, no, no. I was definitely wrong. It's difficult for a guy to juxtapose the war one knows with the war that's being talked about from thousands of years ago. Basically, the tools are different, really, but the humans are the same. And that's what I learned. That's the thing that finally came through to me was that in spite of the fact that I have, you know, an iPhone and running water and, you know, all of those types of things, I'm still the same as a pick a character in the Iliad, you know, that's fighting and trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And, you know, given my experiences, literature is the connective tissue between humans for thousands of years. And, you know, those guys in the the Iliad or, you know, the Odyssey or even the Aeneid, you know, some of the the difficulties that they encountered trying to fulfill what they thought was their destiny and, you know, some of the poor ways in which they behaved and the poor choices they made and the selfishness and just look around. It's the same, you know, it's a beautiful thing. I I think what it does partially is it kind of lets you off the hook. You're not all that original, you know. As as we were settling into our chairs, you were telling me... um, You've just come from class and that you're taking a class this semester on William Blake, the English poet. And you said, oh, oh, man, or something like that. Why? What are you taking from that one? I think William Blake was similar to many people that I admire, you know, super sharp, talented person and trying to figure out, you know, what's going on with this whole life thing. But he did it in such a way that you feel elevated even discussing it. It's soul stuff, you know. I didn't think I'd find that stuff in college. You're, what, 56 now? I I am, but when I wake up, I feel 59 or 60. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not far behind you. I'm 52, and it somehow only recently occurred to me, there's not going to be enough time to read everything I want to read. Do you think about that? Oh, my gosh. Yes, it's almost like a, I only have so many minutes left. You know, yeah, oh, for sure. And the huge library and all the stacks, and you think, 
I want to, I want it all. Yeah. It's, I'm just, I'm a lucky guy. <laughs> That's for sure. It's beautiful here. And the soul stuff, I wasn't prepared for that. And actually I had another class during the last semester. It was called Public Plato with, you know, with Dean Gendler, the Dean of Arts and Sciences. And in that we went through some of the mental health stuff, you know, Achilles in Vietnam. And I would refuse to read that, but because it was a class, I had to read it. And man, I wept openly in class in front of the kids. And I talked about how hard, you know, the transition and being a veteran and losing people. And, and I honestly, Mary Louise, I just didn't think anybody here at Yale had the gravitas to even open the door on those types of things. I thought it was this fluffy place where everybody plays nice. And it was, it was not that way at all. I mentioned when I introduced you that you were wounded in Afghanistan. I want people to know it was badly enough that you required 18 surgeries afterward. Yeah, um, yep. And a lot of uh, mental health challenges that followed as well. I thought of you as the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan two years ago. And so many people were asking questions about, was it worth it? Is this really how it's going to end? You wrestled with those questions, I'm sure, personally, but also um, in class at Yale. Tell me about that. I did. So I was actually invited to go on um, a news program and talk about, you know, my feelings about it uh, with Anderson Cooper. And um, I said, we need to do an after action. You know, in the military, when we do a mission, even a training mission, we have a very serious after action where we tear apart our conduct, all the choices we made, we look at it from A to Z. Because if you don't seriously reflect on the choices made in tough situations, you're probably going to make mistakes again. At any rate, somebody at Yale uh, heard my interview with Anderson. <laughs> it was Jim Levinson from the Jackson School of Global Affairs. And he said, we're going to do that. And he hired uh, Ambassador Ann Patterson. You got to question your former commanders. Yeah, yeah. And and the guys you were shooting on, right? You got to question the Taliban. Yeah, I, as we got into it, Mary Louise, about two weeks into it, I realized this is a hard thing for me to admit to, but I was actually kind of part of the problem because in my heart, I truly believed that if we just killed enough people, <laughs> they would just leave us alone. I thought, man, if we just get over there and just really give them a good beating, they'll stop. And then we'll want to fight and they'll say, hey, man, can we just chill? <laughs> And that isn't how it works, ever. <laughs> That's just not how it works. And so I felt pretty bad about it. And I thought, okay, what can I do? How do we eviscerate this whole thing inside, you know? And we interviewed the Taliban. It was right around Christmas. It was their spokesperson. He was in Kabul. They had to put a generator up for a light and to keep it you know, <laughs> warm enough for them to exist in there. It was pretty amazing. And he said pretty much the things that I thought he would say. But it was still the gesture of it, especially from a guy like me who had the attitude I had. Look, the military is kind of, I think, the easy button. And when we've had problems yeah. internationally, the military is kind of the first resource. And I just think we need to stop that. And that means we need to talk to people that we don't want to talk to. I sure as hell didn't want to talk to the Taliban, <laughs> you know? But I think it's important that we do that kind of thing because there's a lot of dead Americans and Afghans who paid the price for some choices that were made. And I don't know if there was enough reflection on all of that before those choices, right? So I guess it's a matter of figuring out, what, you know, what's more important, humanity or hubris? <laughs> well, from the pinnacle of wisdom, that is senior year, 
Anything you wish you'd known, what would you go back and tell freshman James Hatch as as he was starting out? Um, Freshman James Hatch was pretty scared, but I don't know that he was all that humble with his opinions about the world. The James Hatch you're speaking to now, (laughs) I am the champion of the humble pie, man. (laughs) I have found out so much of what I thought about everything is just not true. It's just funny. You I mean, found I out you know really so hard, much less at the end of four years of an Ivy League education. I really 100% feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's humbling, but it's, it's amazing for sure. I am very fortunate. Yeah. We've been speaking with former Navy SEAL and current Yale University undergrad, James Hatch. It's been great to talk to you. Good luck with senior year. You as well. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. You're listening to All Things Considered. Like a lot of Western American cities, Aurora, Colorado, encourages people to save water. It even pays homeowners up to $3,000 to replace their lawns with something less thirsty. But when one business owner there took it upon himself to be more water efficient, his customers nearly abandoned him. Colorado Public Radio's Rachel Estabrook has this story about the psychology of water conservation. Yamani Hamtezki knows about water shortages. He grew up in Eritrea in the Horn of Africa, a country where nearly half the population doesn't have access to clean water. A lot of people, they carry water or they use donkey or any other source to bring water to their homes from the river. Now, Habtiski lives in Aurora, Colorado, where he proudly owns a laundromat. And now I'd like to develop laundromat for the rest of my life. Aurora is a steadily growing metro Denver city that relies in part on the diminishing Colorado River and worries about where it'll get enough water in the future. When Habtizgi bought the business, he replaced all the top-loading washers with front loaders that used half as much water. The reason why I like to make it energy efficiency, water efficiency, laundry mats, because if I can save water, I save life. But customers were upset. Would you feel like the clothes weren't being cleaned? Yes. They didn't see see water sloshing around in the new washers. One I spoke to said, I want to see my suds. A lot of customers did not come back. We tried to save water, but we lost our business almost. This hesitancy to embrace sustainability is what Leif Van Boven studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's a professor of psychology and neuroscience. He says, in general, people are not inclined to make sustainable choices if it goes against what we believe to be true. We form these associations and have these feelings of familiarity with what works and what we have confidence in. And when that changes, we start to question whether it is as effective. This is notably true when it comes to cleanliness. People tend to think that when products are good for the environment, especially cleaning products, that they're less effective. And while the most sustainable option is often not to consume something at all, Van Boven says people do not like being told to consume less, especially with water. That reality meant laundromat owner Yamani Habtezgi had to get rid of the washers that customers didn't like. It cost the business about $50,000. It is a part of business. You have to listen to the customers. They teach me a good lesson. Because Habtezgi did find a way 
so he didn't have to compromise on his desire to cut water. And then now, instead of uh, more small machines, we have bigger machines. That means we save more water. Because people can do bigger loads. And the big washers Habtisky has now are also front loaders, which the EPA says are the most efficient by far for water and energy. Most importantly, they have the clear windows, the glass, they can see water. When they see the water, they feel very comfortable. Now we have more customers than before. More customers than before. Better technology, not really a broad change in attitude, has meant Habtisgi can keep the business and save water. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Estabrook in Denver. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, climate litigation. We'll hear about the states that are filing lawsuits against companies that have contributed to climate change. In the forecast, a messy afternoon commute as precipitation ranges from showers to downpours this afternoon. Rain should continue until about 10 o'clock tonight, about 60 degrees overnight. Then for tomorrow should be a nice day. Sunny skies, dry, light breezes, high temperatures in the low 70s. Wednesday should bring back the sunshine with temperatures in the mid-70s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for spring. BGSP.edu and Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. Cutter Crawford gets the ball tonight as the Red Sox visit the Rangers for a three-game series down in Texas, 8.05 start time. It's 4.49. WBUR supporters include Greener U, a climate action construction firm that helps to cut building emissions throughout New England. Learn more at greeneru.com. And the Boston Book Festival, where you can see historian Heather Cox Richardson live and in person. It's free thanks to sponsors like Stone Foundation. Details at bostonbookfest.org. Mitski says if her new album was a person, it would be exhausted. She calls it her most American record yet. I'm always trying to figure out what it means to be American. Me too. I feel like I've always been seeing my own identities through the eyes of other people. The Land is Inhospitable and So Are We is Mitski's seventh studio album. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For the past five years, a shadowy group flush with cash has been gobbling up property in a rural county between Sacramento and San Francisco. NPR's Bobby Allen looks at how they've been stirring up drama and division. Retired cattle rancher Kathy Threlfall lives on a small family farm in East Solano County. And she kept hearing about the hundreds of millions of dollars being spent to buy her neighbor's properties. She and other ranchers kept asking, who are these buyers? Are they going to do lithium mining? Are they going to do this? 
who are these people? Maybe it's these guys, maybe that kind of speculation. A local congressman grew worried that the investors might have links to China, a question that morphed into a national security concern since some of the land is near an Air Force base. Amid this confusion, the group, known as Flannery Associates, offered Threlfall $4.5 million to buy her land, at least double the market value. She said no. I couldn't imagine selling to an entity that I, I didn't know who they were. I couldn't possibly do business with somebody who, who was not forthcoming about who they were and what their plans were. The mystery shrouding a nearly billion-dollar acquisition of Solano County farmland encroaching Travis Air Force Base is finally starting to reveal itself. The New York Times exposed Flannery Associates as a who's who of the tech elite. Laureen Powell Jobs, the widower of Steve Jobs, billionaire venture capitalist Mark Andreessen, LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman. Soon after, the group launched a website laying out their plans, prioritizing local jobs, walkable communities, solar farms, open space, seen as an alternative to San Francisco. They say they kept quiet to avoid outside speculators from trying to get in on it. They chose Solano County because it's near Silicon Valley and the land is vast and relatively cheap. We've purchased about 140 properties from about 500 individual owners. We have paid several times for market values for those properties. That's Jan Schrammick. He's a former Goldman Sachs trader who is leading the effort called California Forever. The tech billionaires behind the Utopian City project have spent $900 million on enough parcels to cover San Francisco twice, according to the Times. Schrammick says California needs more housing and that this project will serve people of all incomes. But he says, don't call it a utopia. If it's the case that a place where everyday Californians can afford to live and their kids can walk to school and they can walk to a grocery store and they can have a good paying local job and they don't have to spend an hour and a half every day in commute each way is a utopia, then that's a very sad day in California. While many have cashed in, other residents have formed a resistance movement. Now some of the richest and most powerful business leaders in the world are pitted against farmers wed to the history of this land. Jeannie McCormick and her husband own six square miles along the Sacramento River. My grandfather arrived here in the late 1890s. And her family remains on the land. It's a vast ranch home to nearly 2,000 sheep, as well as wheat, barley, alfalfa, and grape vineyards. An attorney for the group offered McCormick a big paycheck. She said no way, emphasizing her deep connection to the land. He couldn't understand why I would value this idea more than I would value the money. The investors' offers have even divided families. The bitterness that these people have sown in just a year is staggering. Shramik with California Forever disputes this. He says his group has not forced anyone to sell. And he says some have ended up with life-changing amounts of money. Some property owners use the money to further invest in Solano County properties. Others have used it to start businesses. Many others have used the money to move closer to their children and grandchildren. They've paid off debt. This is not the first time Silicon Valley has tried to create its own city from scratch, says Raymond Crabe, a professor at Cornell. He points to efforts by crypto enthusiasts who have wanted to build experimental living communities centered around crypto technology, or the Seasteading Institute, backed by tech billionaire Peter Thiel, which wanted to make a floating city in French Polynesia. Crabe says the effort underway in Solano County is yet another example of what he calls the tech industry's colonizing spirit. They themselves use the word colonization at times, space colonization, colonizing the open ocean, colonizing the high seas. Crabe says most of these projects have floundered along without much success. 
Back in Solano County, Kathy Threlfall says her children are the fifth generation to live on her family's land. And she's not just going to let tech investors turn her property into the city of Silicon Valley's dreams. I live an hour from San Francisco. I have a horizon. What am I going to do with $2 million? California Forever backers must have the support of the remaining local residents if they want their plan to become a reality. And they say they're working on winning the hearts and minds of locals before the plans are someday put to a vote. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. United States Poet Laureate Ada Limon recently announced You Are Here, the signature project for her term. Derek Operly with member station WKMS reports the Kentucky poet wants people to engage with poetry in the natural world. For Limon, experiencing nature helps wash away the human clutter of life, and poetry accentuates its wonder, awe, and mystery. When we talk about nature, we're very interested in, okay, let me think about the scientific name, the Latin name. But at the same time, I do think we have to make space for the things we don't know, the feelings that we can't describe. Uh, and poetry makes room for that. The California-born Limon now lives in Kentucky, and she often finds inspiration for her writing in the world around her. Now, her signature project as United States Poet Laureate seeks to help people commune with nature, something that she says can help them feel connected to the natural world. I think sometimes when you recognize where you are, that you are on a planet, that you are in an ecosystem, you recognize that there is no way that you're alone, that you are part of something more vibrant. She's planning a series of installations in seven national parks across the country, from the snowy volcanic peaks of Mount Rainier National Park in Washington to the subtropical wilderness of Everglades National Park in Florida. The installations are an initiative with the National Park Service and the Poetry Society of America. They will feature picnic tables emblazoned with historic American poems curated by Limon. She says this site-specific public art will urge visitors to truly experience their surroundings. Sometimes even if we have the intention of going to these incredible spaces to take our mind off things or to you know, have some communion with nature, we still forget to do it. Sometimes you need to sit in stillness. Sometimes you need to have a poem or some way in that can allow for that silence, a little breath. These poetry installations will feature an element of interactivity, encouraging park goers to pin their own verses. An anthology of original works also curated by Limon called You Are Here, Poetry in the Natural World is scheduled for release in April of next year. For NPR News, I'm Derek Oberle in Paducah, Kentucky. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss.
From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Proven Winners, with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a varied selection of species to bring year-round interest to landscapes and gardens. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash Native Shrubs and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival, presenting Art at Night, an evening of satirical comedy, film screenings, award-winning performance poetry, groundbreaking art installations, and more. Friday, September 30th. Reserve your tickets now at cambridgesciencefestival.org. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. California has become the latest state to sue major oil companies to hold them accountable for contributing to warming the climate. This is basically uh, taking them to task for knowing that their products were going to cause climate change uh, and then lying about it. More on California's lawsuit and why it's so significant coming up. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Poland's foreign ministry is in the midst of a visa for money scandal. Country music duo Dan and Shay have had a lot of success, but last year they researched what or reached what they felt was a breaking point. It's like a marriage. If you're not going out of your way to work on it, things can fall apart. You can just naturally grow apart. And we sense that that was kind of what was happening. Dan and Shay talk about staying together. Also, the remarks that got Rolling Stone magazine founder Jan Venner in trouble deep. These stories and the forecast are still ahead. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in New York, I'm Jack Spear. Five Americans who'd been held hostage in Iran for years are free today. As NPR's Asma Khalid reports, their release is part of a complicated prisoner deal carried out by the Biden administration. The White House says President Biden held a, quote, emotional call with the families of the returning American citizens. Biden also issued a statement about the situation, reiterating that U.S. passport holders should not travel to Iran and announcing new sanctions against Iran's Ministry of Intelligence and against Iran's former president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. As part of this prisoner swap, the Biden administration agreed to offer clemency to five Iranian nationals. The deal also involved moving $6 billion in Iranian funds from South Korea to Qatar for limited humanitarian purposes for things like food and medicine. The Biden administration insists the U.S. relationship with Iran has not changed, and a senior administration official described Iran as an adversary. Asma Khalid, NPR News. President Biden's son Hunter Biden is suing the IRS. The lawsuit says this is over the federal agency's unlawful release of his private and confidential tax information. More from NPR's Jacqueline Diaz. In his lawsuit filed in Washington, D.C. federal court, Biden says the IRS failed to safeguard his private information. The complaint alleges that IRS agents have targeted and sought to embarrass the president's son. Though the complaint doesn't name the agents, it's in reference to Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler. The two made public disclosures claiming the U.S. Justice Department gave Biden preferential treatment in its IRS investigation. 
Biden is looking for all documents tied to the release of his tax information. And the lawsuit says $1,000 for each of the unauthorized documents released of his private information. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. A two-day United Nations summit is getting underway in New York this week with U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres hoping to jumpstart ambitious goals, including ending extreme poverty and hunger, making sure every child on earth gets a quality secondary education and achieving gender equality. There are some of the 17 goals adopted by the world leaders in 2017, which in many cases have shown only scant progress toward being reached. Wall Street's focus this week is on a two-day meeting of the Federal Reserve that begins tomorrow. Here's NPR's David Gura. Federal Reserve policymakers are not expected to raise interest rates at this meeting. Wall Street put the odds of no increase at 99 percent. Investors hope for more clarity on the Fed's path forward from Chair Jerome Powell and from updated economic projections the central bank will release after it announces its... ER News, New York. On Wall Street, the Dow was up six points today. The Nasdaq was up a point. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts lawmakers are considering legislation that would improve students' accessibility to food on college campuses. As WBUR's Irina Machavariani reports, the bill would cover the state's public community colleges, the UMass campuses, and colleges that serve minority populations. Among its provisions, the Hunger-Free Campus Initiative would allow students to use SNAP benefits and access meal-sharing programs in campus dining halls. Emma Mikulowski is the Director of Student Wellness and Support at the Benjamin Franklin Cummings Institute of Technology in Boston. She says one in three students on her campus experiences food insecurity. We don't talk about it very often, but for so many, one parent loses a job or your class schedule changes and you can't make it to your job as frequently as you'd like to. And this is a slippery slope and this impacts so many students. The bill would also fund anti-stigma campaigns around campus food insecurity. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majawadiani. Massachusetts is expanding efforts to preserve and improve biodiversity. The state will establish goals over the next 30 years to protect wildlife threatened by climate change. Governor Maura Healey announced the policy today. She says more than 400 species in the state are currently listed as endangered. Steps taken will include working to stem the loss of our salt marshes, which provide critically important habitat, protect inland areas from storm impacts, and remove large amounts of carbon from the atmosphere. The policy is one of two executive orders announced today. Healy also announced a ban on single-use plastics by state agencies. More than 5,500 new apartment units are expected to be built in the greater Boston area this year. That's according to a new analysis from the real estate website Rent Cafe. That's just over half the number of new units that were built in 2020. The state has seen a steady decline in new apartment construction over the past three years. 65 degrees out there right now, maybe the wettest day of the week. Rain keeps coming till about 10 tonight, should be down around 60 overnight. Clearing up tomorrow, sunny skies with highs in the low 70s, a breezy day. Wednesday should have more sunshine, temperatures in the mid-70s. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. There's a giant billboard in Times Square today. It reads, California is suing to make polluters pay. Big Oil knew they were causing climate change. They lied to cover it up. This after the state filed suit against several of the world's biggest oil companies. The California suit comes on the heels of several other states and municipalities using the courts to hold the big oil companies accountable for climate change. Richard Wiles is the president of the Center for Climate Integrity, and his organization is working closely with many of the states and municipalities who have filed suits. He joins me now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me on. First, just to start, how big of a deal is this California lawsuit? This is a huge deal. California is, I think, the fifth largest economy in the world, and they're a major oil-producing state. They're the first oil-producing state uh, to file suit against the companies for knowing and then lying about how the fact that their products cause climate change. In addition, I mean, California is a leader in climate policy, and they just have a lot of sway among other states. So, you know, in clean air regs, a lot of states follow California. In litigation, I think they could have the same effect. The, the, the case by California could, in fact, trigger more attorneys general to file. So it's a really big deal. If you're a company that's been branded as just lying about the very essence of what your products do with total disregard for the damage that it will do to society, you know that's basis for a lawsuit and that's basis for just a lot of trouble for the oil companies. All right. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. But in addition to damages, the state's calling for a fund that would be used to pay for recovery from extreme weather events. Just how much money are we talking about there? The damages in the state of California from climate change would easily go into the hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, you could imagine a trillion dollars worth of damages in the state of California alone over time. You know, the state is proposing what they call an abatement fund, which is basically was established in the lead paint cases, right, and upheld by the courts. And it just says, you know, the damage that your product caused, that you knew it would cause and then lie about, um, you know, you've got to pay to help the citizens of the state of California deal with that damage. Uh, and with climate change, as we know, it's pretty much every facet of modern life. Right? You need more air conditioning. You need to deal with wildfires and floods and droughts. I mean, the list of adaptations to deal with this damage is enormous. And, you know, industry should pay their fair share, which will be billions and billions of dollars. I mean, look, there have been legislative efforts to curb climate change. There have been diplomatic efforts, so many attempts at addressing this problem. So what do you think that suing these companies directly accomplishes that these other efforts have not been able to so far? Well, litigation is a fundamentally different strategy. It's not about climate policy. It's about holding them accountable for the damage that they knowingly caused, that they lied about. Okay, so um, that could do a lot of things. I mean, but the main thing we'll do is bring some measure of justice to the public, you know, for being lied to for all these decades and for having to deal with these damages and pay for it. I mean, that's really what it's about. If you step back a little bit and if you look at any major social transformation like climate change, and this is you know, this is a the magnitude of the social change that we're envisioning here is, you know, it's probably unprecedented in human history. But if you look at other major transformational uh, social change movements like civil rights or marriage equality, they all had a litigation component uh, to them, right? It wasn't just working for policy change to the Congress. So what this does, what these cases do is open up that flank. We don't think you can have the climate policy you need for the transition without accountability. 
Accountability is the first step towards solving climate change. And if we can't get accountability, it just doesn't seem like we can really solve this problem. You know, I would imagine that if we were to bring one of the representatives from one of these companies on the line, they may make the argument that lawsuits like these, they're politicized, that they're without merit. What do you say to that? When the industry says that, that just makes me realize how on point these cases are, right? They have not yet had a single substantive uh, critique of the core theory of these cases, which is simply that you knew that your products would cause climate change 40 years ago. We have the documents. You ran a major disinformation campaign. We have the master plan. And you need to be held accountable for that. The industry's critique of the cases never addresses the core facts of the cases. They always try to come up with some other sort of deflection message about how this is a waste of time or a waste of money or whatever. Of course they think it's a waste of money to hold them accountable for the hundreds of billions of dollars of damages they are causing. <laughs> what else would they say? Um, you know, but they're wrong. Uh, and they also know that the evidence in these cases is overwhelming, right? It's just clear as a bell that at the core complaint here being made by the states and the municipalities that they knew and they lied and they ran a massive disinformation campaign to delay action is just supported by the documents to such a degree that they, you know, they have to sort of deflect because they, the evidence is just damning. What are your hopes for this California lawsuit? What does victory look like? And is there an example up out there that is similar to what you'd hope to see? Well, we would hope that this case would trigger more cases. And we hope that ultimately, of course, that the plaintiffs, the state of California, will win, as will the other states. We hope they all win and that the companies are forced to pay their fair share of the hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of damages that they should pay because they knew when they lied the products would cause all these damages. And, you know, we also hope that the narrative of climate change changes after people understand what these cases are about. You know, climate change is basically a crime against humanity. It's not a tragedy. And, you know, the industry wants us to think that it's everybody's fault and that it's some sort of tragic outcome of the use of fossil fuels that we're all going to work together to solve. But really what it is, it's a basically a crime against humanity perpetrated by the oil industry on all of us. And these cases will make that clear. Richard Wiles is the president of the Center for Climate Integrity. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. We asked the American Petroleum Institute, an industry trade group, and one of the defendants in the California suit to respond to Richard Weil's comments. And they shared a statement with us, which said, in part, this ongoing coordinated campaign to wage meritless politicized lawsuits against a foundational American industry and its workers is nothing more than a distraction from important national conversations and an enormous waste of California taxpayer resources. Climate policy is for Congress to debate and decide, not the court system. Now to political drama in Poland, where the government has fired the deputy foreign minister and indicted at least seven other people over a visa fraud scandal. The case threatens to damage the reputation of the country's ruling right-wing party less than a month before a national election. NPR's Berlin correspondent Rob Schmitz is here to bring us up to speed on this story. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, so I gather this minister, uh, ex-minister, he was just fired. He also had his office raided by authorities. Just tell us what's going on here. Yeah, late last week, Polish media published reports about how Polish officials in Warsaw and abroad had fast-tracked work visas for migrants from throughout the developing world in exchange for large sums of money. The operation was reportedly run through Polish consulates and companies that help clients expedite the Polish visa process. 
Polish Deputy Foreign Minister Piotr Wawoczek was fired over the scandal, and seven others, including his assistant, have been indicted for accepting bribes in return for issuing official visas. Now, Polish media are reporting that Wawoczek is in the hospital after a suicide attempt. Oh, no. Okay. Um, give us a sense of, of the scale of this. How many visas are we talking well, officially, the Polish government's prosecutor office has evidence of 268 cases of visa fraud, but that could just be the beginning. From 2021 to the beginning of this year, Poland issued more than 250,000 visas to people from all over Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and beyond. And observers say many of those visas might have been part of this bribery scandal as well. Now, I mentioned all of this is happening as Poland gears up for national elections next month. How big a deal might this scandal be? Yeah, what's interesting here is that Poland's ruling party, Law and Justice, came to power on an anti-immigrant platform. For this past eight years, the party has railed against migrants, especially Muslim migrants, and it often blames them for Poland's problems. And now, as it runs a government, its own officials have been caught selling visas to migrants. I spoke to political analyst Andrzej Bobinski about this. He says in this election season, the Law and Justice Party has centered much of its campaign for re-election around illegal immigration. Quite obviously for Law and Justice, the idea was that this campaign was supposed to be about migration, illegal migrants, about the situation on the Polish border with Belarus. And basically there was this feeling that Law and Justice would use migration to try and attack the opposition and basically to build their whole electoral campaign around. Now, with the scandal, that's going to make it much, much more difficult. More difficult indeed, I would imagine. Up until this scandal, was Law and Justice the ruling party where they predicted to win again? Yeah. Uh, the most reliable polls had Law and Justice on top at around 38 percent of voter support, followed by a coalition of center-left parties uh, called the Civic Coalition at around 31 percent support. Huh. Could this potentially be enough to unseat Poland's government? Well, political analysts I'm talking to do not think it will. They do think that law and justice will lose support, but they think voters who will be angry about this scandal likely won't change their vote to a more left-wing alternative because they see the civic coalition as soft on migration. Instead, Bobinski told me that angry law and justice voters would likely change their votes to another coalition that's even further to the right of law and justice called the Confederacja, a group of parties that is unwilling to form a coalition with law and justice. So this scandal is likely to make the process of forming a government more difficult after Poland's election on October 15th. And PR's Rob Schmitz reporting from Berlin. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. On tomorrow's program, more than one year in, the U.S. and its allies remain committed to helping Ukraine fight Russia's invasion. But among the GOP, real fractures are starting to emerge. That story tomorrow on All Things Considered. Listen on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play your NPR or your member station by name. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 5.50, New York City officials have instructed schools to let migrant parents enroll their children. Some New Yorkers say the school system doesn't have the capacity to handle more students. That story coming up in about a half hour. This is WBUR.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. And Babson College. Explore Babson College graduate programs at their virtual open house on October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash gradopenhouse. Wall Street had a lackluster day today. The Dow and Nasdaq ended the day just about where they began it. S&P gained less than a tenth of a percent. The price of gasoline in Massachusetts is climbing. AAA Northeast says the average gas price rose three cents in the past week. It's now $3.77 a gallon average. That's eight cents higher than this time last year, but 11 cents lower than the national average. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham. It's harvest time. The farm stand has fresh-picked peppers, broccoli, corn, tomatoes, and more. More at nowpicking at volantefarms.com. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. This afternoon into the evening, rainy and raw, just 65 degrees now. Rain should continue until about 10 o'clock tonight. Some drenching rains at times, making for a soaked commute out there. Tonight should dip to about 60 degrees. Then we should have a high in the low 70s tomorrow as skies clear up and the sunshine moves in. Sun could stick around for Wednesday as well. This is WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Rolling Stone magazine co-founder Jan Wenner has apologized for remarks he made in a New York Times story where he defended his choice to only interview white male rock stars for his upcoming book. The Times released audio of his remarks. They include this. Insofar as the women, I mean, there were just none of them were as articulate enough on this intellectual level. He also said some black musicians, quote, didn't articulate at that level. The remarks brought significant backlash over the weekend, including winner's removal from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation, a charity that he helped to found. NPR's Eric Deggins is here with more on the fallout. Hi, Eric. Hi. All right. So timeline, Eric, these remarks were published on Friday. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation's dismissal of winner and his apology came quickly on Saturday. What do you think has made this controversy keep going? I think it's because Winner revealed a deeper issue than just dismissing the ability of genius-level Black and female artists to speak articulately about their work. I mean, his larger point, even in his apology, is that he wanted to include in this book, which is called The Masters, uh, people he felt articulated the spirit of rock and roll and its impact on the world. So he's not just saying he felt these artists couldn't be articulated. He's also saying their art didn't speak to the way that rock and roll has changed the world, which... 
when you look at the impact of artists ranging from Joni Mitchell and Madonna to Jimi Hendrix and Prince, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, we've got another clip from the New York Times interview. Let's listen. Joni was not a philosopher of rock and roll. She didn't, in my mind, meet that test, not by her work, not by other interviews she did. I mean, even the interviewer scoffed at that notion. Okay, Rolling Stone magazine has released a statement saying that Winner has not worked directly at the magazine since 2019 and that his statements, I'm quoting here, do not represent the values and practices of today's Rolling Stone. So given that, why do so many people care so much about what he has to say now and what is included in this book? I think Winner's attitude seems to sum up the way that gatekeepers in the music and music journalism industry downplayed, trivialized, and disregarded the work of non-white and female artists for decades. I mean, Winner helped define what we now view as classic rock and roll, and we now see the sensibilities that help shape those choices. It was so interesting to watch social media reaction from people who used to work in magazines like The Source and Vibe, saying that those magazines were founded in part because of the feeling that Rolling Stone and other parts of the music press weren't doing enough to cover black artists, especially in hip-hop. I mean, I remember back in the 1990s, I was working as a music critic. I felt that way. I even wrote for a small magazine called Rocker Girl to help counter sexism in the mainstream music press. So as somebody who suspected these issues were at play like decades ago, it means something to hear that one of Rock's biggest gatekeepers is admitting it even now. I mean, and Eric, Winner has been at the center of some controversy surrounding the nomination of artists to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And critics have said that non-musicians like him have had too much control over the years, allowing their personal tastes and their friendships to affect the nomination process. Do those controversies rise up again because of these comments? I I think so. I mean, when you see Winner admit during the New York Times interview that his friendships with the artists he's interviewing are important, and he let people like John Lennon edit their own interviews with the magazine, it paints this picture of a cultural gatekeeper who's judging artists in part by how friendly he is with them. And that leads to questioning other past decisions. I mean, in the end, this interview pulled us all back to the bad old days when a much smaller group of publications controlled the discourse about pop music, and there was always this sense that some of the Baby boomers who control those publications had some serious biases. I mean, Eric, crystal ball time. What do you think the future (laughs) holds for Jan Winner as an influencer and with this book? Well, in my perfect world, the publishers would make him go back and include women and people of color. (laughs) Frankly, they never should have okayed the book in the first place the way it is. At least now everybody knows exactly why it is the way it is, and they can judge Winner's legacy accordingly. That is NPR's Eric Daggins. Eric, thanks as always. Thank you. Ghost orchids grow in just a few places in Florida and Cuba. There are only about 1,500 left in Florida, and they are under threat from habitat loss and poachers. Now they are also the subject of a federal lawsuit. Environmental groups are asking the federal government to immediately take steps to protect the ghost orchid as an endangered species. Here's NPR's Greg Allen. There are just a few places in Florida where a visitor can expect to see a ghost orchid. One of them is the Audubon Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary. A particularly spectacular ghost orchid blooms there every summer just off a walkway. Sanctuary director Keith Lochnan says it always attracts lots of visitors. You kind of hear this gasp, you hear this pause when they see this really delicate, beautiful flower that's sort of way up there. You know, it's just really magical. 
Orchids are charismatic as plants go, and ghost orchids have a mystique all their own. They cling to certain species of trees, don't have leaves, and are hardly visible for much of the year until the white flowers, just a few inches long, bloom. Because the plants are well camouflaged, when that happens, the flowers seem to float in midair, giving the ghost orchid its name. It's been featured in books and even a movie. Environmental groups have asked the federal government to give the orchid protections under the Endangered Species Act, but it's a slow process. Elise Bennett, with the Center for Biological Diversity, says the groups are suing the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to speed up the process. And we base that petition on overwhelming scientific evidence that shows precipitous declines for the ghost orchid, as well as ongoing and worsening threats in the future. Among those threats are loss of habitat, destructive hurricanes, and sea level rise. But the number one issue scientists and environmental groups are worried about is poaching. Ghost orchids rarely survive when taken from the wild. Poaching has already led to the extinction of at least two species of Florida orchids. Last year, law enforcement officers arrested a poacher who had taken 36 rare plants, including a ghost orchid. George Gann with the Institute for Regional Conservation says social media and the availability of information on the internet has made poaching a bigger threat than ever. Because of the data that are available online, that it's become much more popular and known about, and so poachers have much better information. Gann says when he began researching and documenting ghost orchids and other species as a high school student in the 1970s, few people ventured into Florida's cypress swamps. In recent decades, he says, that's changed. More and more visitors are willing to wade through the swamps for a chance to see ghost orchids and other rare species. And that, he says, is a problem. People are well-intentioned, but the amount of human traffic, of people walking and touching and trying to see the ghost orchid is probably not sustainable. Listing the ghost orchid as an endangered species would allow the federal government to designate the areas where it's found as critical habitat. That would open the way to additional protections, including possibly limiting access, so the orchid isn't, as Gann says, loved to death. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, our latest unsung hero coming up in about 25 minutes on WBUR. Crazy busy on the roads around town. That in part is due to all the rainfall out there. We could get at least another inch of rain before midnight tonight. Our flood watch continues until 2 a.m. Temperatures about 60 for a low overnight. Tomorrow and Wednesday should be nothing like today. Sunny, breezy, dry both days. Not too warm, though. Temperatures in the low to mid 70s. It's 530. If you're a newcomer to Boston or just a frequent traveler, there's a fair chance you pass through Logan International Airport in East Boston. But have you ever truly explored the neighborhood around Logan? It's time for a tip from our field guide to Boston. East Boston, or Eastie as locals call it, is an immigrant neighborhood to its core. For almost two centuries, first-generation Americans have made it home. And today, Latinos from Colombia, El Salvador, and Guatemala make East Boston one of the most ethnically diverse communities in the city. A tip from locals, 
make sure you go get a pupusa, the melty, cheesy, doughy Salvadoran staple at 2 Metapon on Bennington Street. To get more familiar with what makes Boston's communities unique, check out the Field Guide to Boston at wbur.org slash fieldguide. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Counseling for abortion services has resumed at two Planned Parenthood clinics in Wisconsin more than a year after the Dobbs ruling brought them to a halt. From member station WUWM, Chuck Kornbach tells us that anti-abortion rights protests outside one clinic have intensified. Planned Parenthood has decided to resume abortion care in Wisconsin after a county judge indicated she doesn't believe an often-cited 1849 state law actually bans abortion. As Planned Parenthood's Milwaukee clinic opened for mandated patient counseling, one of about 30 protesters spoke through a PA system, and a clinic supporter blew a whistle to try to drown out the words. One wicked judge! Planned Parenthood says that under Wisconsin law, any patient who comes in for counseling must still wait at least 24 hours before having an abortion. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Quirmbach in Milwaukee. A suspect has been arrested in the ambush killing of a Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputy who was shot over the weekend as he sat in his patrol car. 30-year-old deputy Ryan Klinkenbrumer was shot Saturday night outside the Palmdale Sheriff's Station and pronounced dead a short time later at a hospital. He had just gotten engaged four days earlier. L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna praised the quick actions of community members who helped authorities track down the suspect at his home. We wouldn't be here today announcing the arrest if it wasn't for courageous community members who came forward and were so offended by what happened, they had to do something about it. I thank them. I thank them. 29-year-old Kevin Salazar was taken into custody this morning after barricading in his Palmdale home for nearly a dozen hours. Sheriff Luna praised law enforcement for showing restraint. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The government center garage demolition in Boston is likely to make Green Line riders' trips more complicated this afternoon and for the next month. The MBTA is shutting down the stretch of Green Line between Government Center and North Station that runs underneath the garage. As WBR's Rob Lane reports, it's all because of a safety precaution. The Green Line is shut down several times in the area since the summer of 2022, when the death of a construction worker exposed structural issues with the garage. But this closure is scheduled to last nearly a month. Mark Drazen of the Metropolitan Area Planning Council tells WBUR's Radio Boston decision makers are right to prioritize safety, even if the timeline leaves commuters frustrated. I think the T for a variety of reasons, the developer, the city and everyone else is using a very cautious set of standards here. And in the long run, I think that's probably for the best. The T is advising passengers to use the orange line to circumvent the closure. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Governor Maura Healey is announcing two policies designed to tackle the climate crisis. She shared the plans at the Clinton Global Initiative meeting in New York City this morning. The first is an executive order that bans the purchase of single-use plastic bottles in all state agencies. The second policy will establish goals over the next 30 years to protect wildlife facing climate change threats. Worcester police are looking into reports of vandalism against two city council members. 
Counselor Tel Hygia reports that a baseball was thrown at her home and campaign signs were strewn around her yard. She says that she's been the target of personal attacks for her progressive stances around issues including homelessness. And City Councilor Donna Carrillo says her car was egged. Someone also scrawled the word racist on one of her campaign signs. Boston School Superintendent Mary Skipper says the district is making progress on a major bathroom renovation project. The schools are committed to renovating 16 bathroom facilities at schools across the district as part of a recent renovation improvement. Skipper says that recent delays are due to a number of issues, including problems accessing materials. I think things are catching up now, but certainly post the pandemic, things slowed way down on being able to get the materials. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of the work we've done. We fully know and want to do additional work, and we will. Skipper did not provide a timeline for the remaining renovations. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu together. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. We've got a flood watch in effect until the wee hours of tomorrow morning. Thanks to all the rainfall, watch out for some major puddles on the roads. Overnight lows tonight about 60. Tomorrow should be mainly sunny, windy, right about 73 degrees. 66 degrees now in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Country music duo Dan and Shay have had a successful few years. Grammys, a hit song with Justin Bieber, and a slew of devoted fans. But last year, they reached what felt like a breaking point. As we kind of progressed in our career and things started to happen, we both got married and uh, kind of started our own lives. And I think that was, you know, one of the things that happened is you kind of start to not necessarily drift apart, but you're sometimes going in different directions. That's Shay Mooney. He and Dan Smyers have worked together for 10 years. Now they're back with a new album that almost didn't happen. It's called Bigger Houses. The title track delivers a message about fulfillment and satisfaction that Mooney and Smyers are feeling now about their music. There's always gonna be a for the rest of your life greener grass in the yard next door or a shined up Chevy little newer than yours you're never gonna feel an empty cup if what you got still not enough the thing about happiness I found is it don't live in bigger houses but getting to that place of contentment it took work time and hard conversations. And when I reached Dan and Shay at member station WPLN in Nashville, I asked Dan Smyers just how they rekindled their friendship and love for their music career. It's not just enough to 
to make great music and be done with it. It's like you got to really be on 24-7, delivering content, creating content. And I feel like I was spending way more time doing the social media thing, trying to come up with ideas to go viral or, you know, to get good engagement on social media. And I think that kind of made me fall out of love with music. The thing that filled my cup the most was being in a writing room, especially being in a writing room with Shay. And once I reconnected with that part of my life, I called Shay and I was like, dude, we gotta, we gotta talk. I put some urgency on it and he was like, oh, we can get together like a couple days next week. I was like, well, how's tonight sound? And, uh, <laughs> and he came over and we just we aired it all out we we apologized for things that had been on our hearts and we just talked everything out and um we just like said we need to really focus on this it's like a marriage if you're not going out of your way to work on it things can fall apart you can just naturally grow apart and we sensed that that was kind of what was happening and it was like let's spend a few days together let's work on music let's write songs and if we don't have a song idea let's just hang out let's spend time together off the clock and and be best friends again and, and that's what we did Shay, what was that like for you? I was driving over there, you know, palms sweating, <laughs> driving to his house. And when we sat down and started talking, it was just this kind of sigh of relief of, I think the one thing that we both wanted to hear was that it both mattered to us. I genuinely didn't know if... if Dan was really wanted to continue to do this. And I think one of the biggest pieces that both of us had to admit, not just to each other, but to ourselves, is that, like Dan said, like Dan and Shay matters to us. Paradise is a swing on a porch. Summertime is a little too short. There is a song on this album that you all have said was really born out of this sort of restorative journey that you went on together. It's called Always Gonna Be. Can one of you just tell us about it? This is Dan. This is the first song that we wrote for the Bigger Houses album. And Always Gonna Be is just, it's a defining song on the album. It was just us reconnecting as friends and hanging out uh, with no pressure. And I think that just kind of defined where we were going sonically, where we are going conceptually. And it was one of those ones that we wrote it, we did a demo of it, and we're like, this feels authentically Dan and Shay. This is like the Dan and Shay in its purest form. And sonically, I think it was a bit of a return to our roots, um, you know, our, our country influences. We did this record very organically, you know, we did it with a live band. We just wanted the words and the feelings and the emotions and the vocals to cut through and not be overshadowed by, you know, the glitz and glam of, of heavier production like we'd done in the past. things that I love so much about country music and have loved over the years is the fact that it's a huge umbrella with so many different types of music that can fit inside this genre. So I just wonder, how do y'all see yourselves fitting? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a good question. I feel like everybody is <laughs> continuing to search for, you know, where they fit. I think that we land, you know, right around Dan and Shay. <laughs> I think that's the only way to describe <laughs> it. We have our own thing and we have for 10 years now and um, we're not trying to be anything other than exactly who we are, and I think that's a very exciting thing. I can't wait to really 
find out, you know, I think as we move forward and, and try to come from a very genuine place and, and learn, uh, I think you should never stop learning as an artist, as a person. You know, I hope that I'm 90 years old one day and still trying to learn all I can. Uh, and trying to evolve. Hopefully we're 90 and doing this together. <laughs> I think it'd be a fun tour to do when you're 90. We'll, we might have to sit down, but we've redefined our meaning of what it looks like, uh, you know, to have success. You know, I think that at the end of the day, no matter what this album does, I can stand behind this and say 110% that I'm the most proud that I've ever been of a project before. You all mentioned the idea that you hope you're still doing this when you're 90 years old. And if you are, I hope we get to have this conversation again. But (laughs) I am so curious. You have been through such kind of an emotional journey in the span between your last album and this one and that tour that was um, aborted because of COVID. You'll have the tour, of course, but also we know that you're joining the voices judges in the upcoming season. You, of course, have your families and your friendships, individual passions. How do you plan on keeping that equilibrium and that balance and that love for the music? How do you feel like you'll manage keeping that center as you go off on this new journey? Yeah, I feel like it really took hitting that rock bottom moment to identify what it was that kind of sent us on the wrong path. And I feel like just knowing that, being aware of that, Um, and being open about that, you know, I feel like every time we talk this out into the universe, like just having this conversation today, I'm looking over at Shay, I'm like, dude, like, this is awesome that we get to do this. I feel like the more we're vulnerable and the more we talk about it to just go out of our way to be proactive, this go around about saying, Hey man, okay, I'm getting a little burnout. And I feel like that makes this, what we're doing infinitely sustainable. It really does. Why don't you save me the trouble? Dan Smyers and Shay Mooney are Dan and Shay. Their new album, Bigger Houses, is out now. Thank you all so much. Thank you for taking the time. This was a this was a very therapeutic conversation. Hopefully we can do this again and uh, hopefully we can get you out to a show. We'll hang out in person. Absolutely. We've got to get you out. Thank you for the time again. We appreciate you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Utah's new Uinta Basin Railway would send thousands of tank cars full of crude oil on a route beside the Colorado River. After a federal ruling, the project is on pause, so opponents are celebrating for now. But Aspen Public Radio's Hallie Zander reports railroad backers have incentive to keep trying. On a recent bluebird morning in western Colorado, Gregory Cowan and some friends are rigging boats and paddleboards for a trip through Glenwood Canyon. It's my favorite place. It's where I can go and just shut everything off, and it's just me and whoever's in the raft with me and the river. What was supposed to be a protest flotilla against the Uinta Basin Railway has turned into a celebration after an environmental analysis for the railroad was found inadequate by a federal judge. The railroad would connect to existing tracks that run beside the river here, and it would send up to 185,000 oil tank cars a year down the tracks. Heather Matras-Cowan is Gregory's wife. Together, they own a rafting business that takes tourists on the Colorado down this canyon, and they worry about derailments and oil spills. It would shut us down when your season's three months long. To lose half all is a huge impact. You can't recover from that. 
So the boaters today are psyched, but proponents of the railroad are not. It would probably be an understatement to say that I was disappointed. Gregory Miles is a county commissioner in Utah and co-chair of a coalition of local Utah governments behind the Uinta Basin Railway. The Uinta Basin, we produce a lot of oil. We produce a lot of cattle. We feed America, both in fuel and in food. Right now, a lot of oil from the basin goes to refineries in Salt Lake City. But drillers say they could produce a lot more if they could ship it by rail through the Rockies to the Gulf Coast. And Miles is frustrated that the judge says the proposed railroad needs to address oil spill risks from tank cars after they leave the new railroad and travel onto existing tracks beside the Colorado River. I think that we're being held to a higher standard toilet paper that's manufactured in the Northwest, we don't look in Georgia septic tanks to see what turpentine has done. But despite the setback, Miles says they'll do whatever is necessary to move the project along. One reason the judge ruled the railroad's environmental analysis insufficient is because it failed to adequately address climate change impacts. It says if all the oil they plan on sending to Gulf refineries is burned, it could make up a little under 1% of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. That worries rafters on the Colorado. Heather Montrose-Cowan. I've seen the impacts of changing weather patterns, more extremes. What has once been a very predictable stretch of river is not. They've seen massive wildfires and mudslides that shut down access to the river in this canyon for weeks at a time and suspended their business multiple summers in a row. And climate change makes disastrous wildfires and mudslides more likely. I don't think if you had asked me six years ago if I was an environmentalist, I don't think I would have said that as part of my identity. And now we're standing here and it's a very different place to be. She and her husband know that the rail project isn't dead yet, but today they and about 30 rafting friends are happy it's at least stopped for now. Oil and water don't mix. What they do bring us together. Yeah. Look at this. Yeah, it's pretty cool. (laughs) The coalition of local governments in Utah pushing the railroad will begin working on an updated environmental analysis. They have not yet offered a timeline for when that will be ready. For NPR News, I'm Hallie Zander. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks a lot for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, how the University of Colorado's new football coach, Deion Sanders, has gotten the team out of the basement at long last. Red Sox are down in Texas, where they start up a three-game series with the Rangers tonight, 8.05 start time. Both the Sox and Rangers were swept in their respective series over the weekend. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales University, bringing a hands-on learning approach online. From computer science to psychology, JWU has flexible and convenient online options. We could be in for at least another inch of rain before midnight tonight. Temperatures about 64, a low. Tomorrow and Wednesday, nothing like today. Sunny, breezy, and dry both days. Not too warm. Temperatures in the low to mid-70s. 66 degrees in Boston at 550. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Science Festival, September 25th through October 1st. Discover cutting-edge technology, celebrate innovation, witness the future of fashion, and more. 2021 was a good year to invest in cryptocurrency. We had heard so many stories of people getting rich overnight on crypto that even like the craziest promises seemed kind of plausible. 
But then came 2022 and the trillion dollar crypto wipeout. We'll hear tales from the world of casino capitalism. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. New York City schools have opened their doors this year to around 20,000 children who are recently arrived migrants. Public schools must accept all children, regardless of immigration status. But some parents wonder if the city's school system can handle so many new students. NPR's Jasmine Garst reports. For many New York kids, summer means a summer job or summer school. For 13-year-old Vanessa, this summer was spent selling fruit snacks outside a subway station in Manhattan with her mother. She says people out here aren't bad, and she's been learning English. Vanessa is part of a new wave of migration to New York. About 100,000 people have arrived in the city since spring 2022. Her mother, Alejandra, asked that their last name be withheld to protect their family who remained in Ecuador. Back there, she says, they're killing people. There's kidnappings, rapes. Alejandra is undocumented. Vanessa, her daughter, is applying for asylum. And now she's started eighth grade in Brooklyn. The large influx of migrant children coming into schools has caused some division among New York parents. Compassion dictates that you want to try to figure out, like, they're here now. What are we going to do with these kids that are here? Maud Marin is a parent of four. She's also an elected leader on a Manhattan educational advisory board. But there should also be a question of what is the impact going to have on kids that have suffered many times over a year of learning loss from COVID shutdowns and pandemic. And now they're going to have classrooms filled to the brim with migrant kids that teachers are unprepared and in some cases incapable of teaching. Marin says she hasn't heard from the Department of Education on how they plan to address the situation at hand. She worries that New York schools can't handle so many foreign students, not with only 3,400 teachers dedicated to instructing English language learners. But Melissa Avalos Ramos, chief of staff for the New York Department of Education, says New York schools are prepared for this. We can handle it. We always have handled it. This is a massive increase that we've ever seen before, and it is not without challenge. This is a real opportunity for our teachers, our admin, and all of our staff to really step up. The department has hired 188 English as a new language teachers and is looking to hire more. NPR spoke to teachers throughout the city who said it's barely enough. The Department of Education is vastly under-resourced for everything. Christopher asked that we withhold his last name because he's concerned he'll get in trouble for speaking out. He says the new students are a joy to be around. Every kid that we've had so far has been incredibly eager to learn. They just want to be kids. They're children. He worries that they're being scapegoated for crisis that existed long before they arrived. I mean, you could take all of these new students out and they're still... There's no money. Other teachers told NPR this situation could enrich New York schools. This is an opportunity to also diversify our schools. New York City is one of the most segregated school districts in the country. Rosie Frescella has a child in elementary school and is an ENL teacher herself in the city. She says it's challenging, but there's a really strong need in the United States for us to be multilingual. Most of the world is multilingual. 
and people from the United States really lag behind in that respect. In the meantime, far removed from the debates, standing in the midst of midtown Manhattan's traffic, Vanessa, the 13-year-old Ecuadorian, says she's dreaming of becoming a lawyer one day. But for now, she's just happy to go back to school. It's been a long summer out here, and she's ready for a break. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Heather Harper, and a note, this story is about the loss of a pregnancy. In 2016, Heather and her husband were expecting their fifth child. It was a surprise, but they were thrilled. Everything was going fine until one day she realized she did not feel the baby move. My doctor had me come in for an ultrasound, and my worst fears were confirmed when we saw on the screen our little baby with no movement in his heart. I had to be induced and deliver his body. He was nine inches long and he weighed nine ounces. We named him Desmond. And two days later, we had a small graveside service and a burial for him. The weeks that followed this were the hardest time in our lives. Eventually, I had to force myself to go out of the house. And one of the first places I would go was church. Many people were afraid to speak to me or look at me because I know they didn't know what to say. One Sunday, I was so overwhelmed that I stepped out of the chapel and I sat down on a sofa in the foyer just to be alone for a few minutes. Not long after this, a woman came out and sat on the opposite end of the sofa We didn't speak to each other or even look at each other. In the silence between us in the foyer, and without looking at me, she said in a loud and clear voice, My baby died 35 years ago, and not a day has gone by that I haven't thought of her. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you are grieving for too long. I was too shocked and overcome to speak. All I could do was nod. Her words were what I needed to hear in that moment of my life. I needed to know that I would never be the same again and that it was normal to be that way, that I wasn't broken, that there was nothing wrong with grief, no matter how long it lasted. And most of all, she let me know that I wasn't alone. Heather Harper lives in Newburgh, Indiana. She says her unsung hero taught her the importance of acknowledging someone else's pain, even when you don't know what to say. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone. 
at betterhelp.com public. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. At uma.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Discover and rediscover what the Hub has to offer with WBUR's new Field Guide to Boston. The Field Guide connects you to greater Boston's neighborhoods, people, and history. Find your way at wbur.org slash fieldguide. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Five Americans who'd been detained in Iran are on their way home. These Americans are now free after having endured something that I think uh, most of us can't possibly imagine. The deal to win their release included giving Iran access to about $6 billion in frozen funds. It's Monday, September 18th, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up today, Illinois became the first state to eliminate cash bail, why the debate was so contentious. Young Americans are known for being passionate about climate change, but new polls show that when it comes to politics, climate change gets short shrift. And anybody seen a stray U.S. military fighter jet? The $80 million plane is missing and the Pentagon wants it back. It's 6.01 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in New York, I'm Jack Spear. Five Americans who've been detained in Iran are on their way home, and family members are expressing relief and joy. NPR's Michelle Kalman reports that most will now spend a few days getting medical and psychological care. Lawyer Jared Genser says the longest held of the five, Siamak Namazi, is feeling overwhelmed. He lost eight years of his life, and his father was jailed in Iran for part of that time, too. I'm just so grateful um, today that uh, the Namazi family nightmare is finally over. 
He says Namazi and the other Americans will spend the next few days at a U.S. military hospital. Genser says the U.S. needs to learn some lessons, too, and do more to deter Iran and other countries from taking hostages to use for exchanges. That's a topic Secretary of State Antony Blinken will be addressing with other countries at the U.N. General Assembly this week. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, New York. A judge is weighing whether former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark can have his Georgia criminal case trial in federal court. Clark is charged alongside former President Trump and 17 others with trying to interfere with the 2020 election result. Sam Greenglass of member station WABE has more. Jeffrey Clark wrote a memo saying the DOJ had identified significant concerns that may have impacted the election outcome in multiple states and wanted to send it to officials like Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. But prosecutors say Clark's claim was false and part of a conspiracy to reverse Trump's loss that had nothing to do with Clark's role as head of the DOJ's civil division. Clark did not appear in court to testify, but his lawyer argued everything Clark did was squarely in his lane at DOJ, allowing his case to be removed from state court. U.S. District Judge Steve Jones has already denied a similar motion from former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who has appealed. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. A dozen people are suing the federal government looking to end a secret watch list they say denies Muslims due process. Lewis Hockman from member station WNYC has more. Mohamed Karula is a U.S. citizen, a former teacher, and the five-term mayor of Prospect Park, New Jersey. But this past spring, the Secret Service told him he couldn't attend an Eid celebration at the White House he'd been invited to. I discovered that if I don't do something now, my children and their children will probably be second-class citizens based on their ethnic and religious background. Karula's name appears on a leaked copy of a government watch list with 1.5 million others. The Council on American-Islamic Relations says almost all are Muslim or of Middle Eastern descent, and there's no way to get them removed. For NPR News, I'm Lewis Hockman. Stocks closed little changed on Wall Street today. The Dow was up six points. The Nasdaq rose a point. The S&P 500 gained three points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council is considering new ways to tackle gun violence in the city. The council held a hearing today on a measure that would require Boston police to put together an annual report on how illegal guns are making their way to the city. Council President Ed Flynn is pushing for a detailed report to guide policymakers as they develop more effective strategies to reduce gun violence. Where it was sold, manufactured, imported, assembled, the date such firearm was seized or surrendered, and the date the date such firearm was last sold legally, whether the firearm was a ghost gun or a firearm created using a 3D printer. The council says 75 percent of guns used to commit crimes in Boston are not purchased in Massachusetts. The ordinance will remain in committee until the council decides whether to vote on it. Governor Maura Healey plans to ban single-use plastics in state agencies. That includes a ban on purchasing single-use plastic bottles. Healy announced the executive order at the Clinton Global Initiative meeting in New York City this morning. She says the ban is the first of its kind by a state government. Plastic waste, plastic production are among the leading threats to our oceans, our climate, environmental justice. In government, we have an obligation. We also have an opportunity to not only stop contributing to this damage, but to chart a better path forward. 
Healy is set to sign the executive order later this week. The ban will then take effect immediately. Boston is getting a new professional women's soccer team for the first time in five years. The Boston Globe reports the National Women's Soccer League has awarded an expansion franchise to the local women-led ownership group. The group uh, proposed refurbishing White Stadium in Franklin Park as part of the deal for use by both the team and Boston Public Schools. The former professional women's soccer team, the Boston Breakers, dissolved in 2018 because of poor attendance. The unnamed women's team, the new one, will start playing in 2026. 66 degrees now in the Boston area. Watch out for some major puddles on the roads. Overnight lows about 60. Tomorrow should be a lot different from today. Mainly sunny skies, dry and windy, about 73 degrees. A little bit warmer on Wednesday, just as sunny. Temperatures about 75. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Five Americans who had been detained in Iran are on their way home, and family rem- family members are expressing relief and joy. Earlier today, they were flown out of Iran to Qatar, where some of them were seen emerging from their flight, getting their first taste of freedom as U.S. and Qatari officials greeted them, sharing some embraces and smiles. The deal to end their release, though, is facing some criticism here in Washington because Iran is getting access to about $6 billion, and PR's Michelle Kellerman reports. For lawyer Jared Genter, it was the call he's been waiting for. His client, American businessman Siamak Namazi, who had been jailed for over eight years and faced torture in Iran, was seen on video stepping off a plane in Doha. A moment later, he picked up the phone and called me, and uh, I picked up the phone and he said, Jared, I'm finally free. And for me, it was uh, the culmination of a whole lot of work and effort by so many people all around the world over so many years. And I'm just so grateful um, today that uh, the Namazi family nightmare is finally over. Genzer says Siamak Namazi, who was passed over in several previous prisoner swaps with Iran, was feeling overwhelmed. You know, overwhelmed by the fact that this day had finally come. And frankly, I mean, he's missed some of the best years of his life. You know, he'd like to get married and have kids. He... Uh, you know, uh, obviously needs to figure out what he's going to do for a job and what is he going to do and, and how is he going to recover from this uh, traumatic experience. In addition to Namazi, four other Americans were released. They include environmentalist Murad Tabaz and Imad Shargi, an Iranian-American businessman. The Biden administration did not identify the two others, a man and a woman. Namazi's mother and Tabaz's wife were traveling with them. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he had an emotional call with all of them from Qatar. It's very good to be able to say that our fellow citizens are free after enduring something that I think it would be difficult for any of us to imagine, that their families will soon have them back uh, among them, and that um, in this moment, at least, I have something very joyful to report. The Biden administration has faced a lot of criticism for the deal since it involved not just swapping prisoners, but also helping Iran get access to about $6 billion in its oil revenue. Administration officials argue that they got the best deal they could. The five Iranians who were given clemency in the U.S. justice system were mostly convicted of or facing charges of sanctions violations. They were, in the words of one U.S. official, small potatoes. And the money is Iran's. Here's how Secretary Blinken put it. 
This involved the um, access by Iran to its own money, money that uh, had accumulated in a Korean bank as the result of oil sales that Iran made, which were lawful at the time those sales were made. The $6 billion is now in a bank account in Qatar, and the U.S. says Iran can only use it for food, agricultural products, medicine, and medical devices. The U.S. says it can be cut off again at any time. But speaking on Fox News Sunday Morning Futures, Republican Congressman Michael McCall said the administration is naive. We all know money's fungible. And then the president of Iran just came out and said, I'm not spending it however I want to. And of course he is. And guess where it's going to go? It's going to go into terror proxy operations. It's going to go into building their nuclear, you know, their nuclear, not defense system, but offensive system. Secretary Blinken says the administration will keep up the pressure on Iran, and he's working with other countries at the United Nations General Assembly this week to come up with an agreement on ways the international community can punish countries that take hostages. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, New York. One of the nation's newest and most expensive fighter jets has gone missing. The pilot ejected over South Carolina yesterday after what military officials call a mishap. The plane kept going and nobody knows where it went. Jay Price of member station WUNC joins me to talk about this missing plane that has already launched a thousand memes. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me. Okay, before we get to what happened, tell me more about this jet. What do we need to know? Yeah, the the F-35 Lightning II is our military's newest stealth fighter. It's often said in certain conditions that it shows up on radar, for instance, about as well as an object the size of a golf ball. It has the latest advanced systems. I mean, pretty much what you would expect. Navigation, radar, radar jamming, targeting, all the modern stuff. And this one was a version built especially for the Marine Corps and could actually take off and land vertically. Really valuable for fighting where there's not even the most basic of runways. The Marines got their first ones in 2015 and the Air Force and Navy began getting them later. And the F-35 is expected to be crucial for U.S. and NATO air power for the next few decades. Okay, so the military's newest stealth fighter, so stealthy that they can't find it, what happened? Yes, really stealthy. Um, what triggered all the memes and jokes was one of the first military, one of the military's first notices to the public. I mean, they don't know what happened so far. The military put out this tweet, or an X now, I guess, now that Twitter's bluebird has also gone missing. It put out a tweet saying, essentially, hey, we lost one of these things. If you find it, call this number. Which, of course, within minutes meant that social media exploded with memes like a photo of the plane getting the missing golden retriever treatment with its photo stapled (laughs) to a utility pole. And jokes like, if the military is so woke, like the hard right likes to say, how were they so unaware to let this plane sneak away? Can I just pause you for a second? Just to to stress, the U.S. military, which possesses the most state-of-the-art communications, radar, etc., on the planet, they, they are asking the public to call a hotline? Yeah, I mean, yes. I call. I actually called one of them, and it was just the public affairs office for the planes unit. I actually called it and talked to this cheerful young corporal, and he just read me a news release and 
couldn't say much more. He just said it's been a crazy day. Oh, I bet it has. I, I, there is a serious side to this, right? The the pilot is safe, but I guess they're worried about danger to people on the ground. Yeah, I mean that would be the first thing. You know, when you hear the pilot ejects and it's you know he's being treated, it sounds like he's probably going to be okay. But then you do immediately think of what happens where it hits, and this late in the game, it, it seems like maybe that won't be an issue. But all this does raise serious questions. I talked with Ward Carroll, who has a popular YouTube channel on military topics. Now, Carroll isn't just any guy online. He was longtime crew on Navy F-14s, which you might remember from the original Top Gun movie. Then he was spokesman for the V-22 Osprey program, another really complex aircraft. Ward gets the joke, but says this incident raises real questions. These little things can get extrapolated to big things. So what else have we lost? What else don't we know? We don't know where our own airplanes are. How do we know where the Chinese airplanes are or ships? And Carol is as baffled as anyone uh, else about how this plane with all its cutting edge systems could be so hard to find. That is WUNC's Jay Price. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Starting today, judges in Illinois can no longer order people accused of crimes to pay money to get out of jail while awaiting trial. A handful of states have eased rules around cash bail, but Illinois is the first to ban it completely. Studies show that cash bail disproportionately affects Black, Latino, and low-income people. Chip Mitchell with member station WBEZ in Chicago has our story. Two years of intense public debate culminated this summer when the Illinois Supreme Court rejected constitutional challenges to the law. Today, criminal courts across the state are doing away with what they used to call bond hearings. At 1230 will be what we call initial appearance hearings. On a recent panel, Cook County Circuit Judge Mary Marubio laid out plans for courthouses she helps oversee. She said judges will hold in-depth hearings on whether releasing a defendant would pose a safety threat or flight risk. Not too different from how we release people now. It's just that money will no longer be a condition of release. I'm excited. I feel like a, a baby has been born. That's Lavette Mays. She's been organizing against cash bail since her own criminal case that started with a 2015 fight with a family member. Mays was charged with aggravated battery. Um, my bail was set at $250,000, $25,000 to walk. I couldn't afford that bond. She spent more than a year in jail awaiting trial. A judge eventually lowered the bond and she took a plea agreement. But she says she lost her home and livelihood and the jail time was rough on her two kids. Today, as Illinois ends money bond, Mays says she's relieved. <sighs> I feel like a low has been lifted because we finally got something that's going to help the black and brown community. Now I can sleep knowing that people just won't be able to be sent back to jail because they can't afford to pay bail. In suburban DuPage County, state's attorney Bob Berlin is not celebrating. He and most other county prosecutors in Illinois opposed the law's initial version. Even after he worked on amendments that toughened the law, Berlin says it still doesn't give judges enough discretion to jail pretrial defendants. But he's actually expecting a smooth transition this week. We're all professionals. We all have an obligation to follow the law, whether we agree with it or not. Advocates are worried that judges will be skittish about freeing defendants without cash bail and could increasingly rely on ordering home detention with electronic bracelets as a substitute. A state agency is rolling out a new electronic monitoring program for defendants in 70 Illinois counties. 
That's not going over well with the Cook County Public Defender's Office, which represents defendants who can't afford to pay for a lawyer. Assistant Public Defender Colleen Gorman told reporters last week her clients who work in trades, like construction, might lose their jobs. The electronic monitoring program requires that every week, a few days before, they submit a letter from their boss saying what their hours are going to be that week and what locations they will be at. We know this is impossible. A plumber doesn't know whose plumbing's going to go out next week. Some research suggests that curtailing reliance on cash bail has had a minimal effect on public safety. That was the finding of a Loyola University Chicago study of four parts of the country. Starting today, all eyes will be on Illinois. For NPR News, I'm Chip Mitchell in Chicago. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us on this Monday evening here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 6.30 in China, memberships to stores like Sam's Club and Costco have become something of a status symbol. We'll find out why. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Glass Labs Great Glass Pumpkin Patch, in person and online, Saturday the 23rd. Info at web.mit.edu slash glass lab. Pretty dull day on Wall Street today. The Dow and NASDAQ ended the day just where they began it. S&P, though, gained a little bit, just a less than a tenth of a percent. Greater Boston area could gain more than 5,500 new rental apartment units this year. A new analysis from the real estate website Rent Cafe says just over half the number of units, that is just over half the number of units that were built in 2020. The state has had a steady decline in new apartment construction over the past three years. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Join a vibrant academic community. Enjoy in-person peer-led courses on their Cambridge campus, speaker events, special interest groups, and more. Apply by October 25th to start in February. To learn more, visit their website, the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Cutter Crawford gets the ball tonight as the Red Sox visit the Rangers for a three-game series. Jordan Montgomery is uh, pitching for Texas. The Sox reside in the basement of the AL East. 8.05 start time tonight. Today may be the wettest day of the week. Rain keeps coming till about 10 o'clock tonight. Should have temperatures around 60. And then for tomorrow, sunny skies. High temperatures in the low 70s. 66 degrees in Boston now at 621. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com, and Fresh City Kitchen, offering a thoughtful approach to catering your special occasions, freshcitykitchen.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. 
President Biden campaigned in 2020 on an ambitious climate platform. He carried that ambition into office, making major investments in the climate crisis. Still, as Biden and his campaign are hitting the campaign trail, they are being confronted by young voters' climate anxiety. Republicans are being asked how they plan to address climate change, too. And NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo is here to explain the ways that climate change is or isn't an issue for voters. Hi, Jimena. Hey, Juana. So, okay, you have been talking with voters who consider climate a big issue. Tell us, what have you been hearing? Well, both Democrats and Republicans that I spoke to do feel passionately about climate, whether it's preserving the planet for a future generation or increasing economic productivity. Here's Democrat Shiv Soen. It's not like the number one issue. It's like very high up there because climate, to me, intersects with pretty much everything else. And here's Republican identifying Alexander Diaz. Being born and raised in Arizona, like the environment and the climate and the weather, like all very important topics for me. You might remember Alexandra as the student who asked about climate during the first Republican primary debate. And I will say both Shiv and Alexandra might be climate voters, but they're not only climate voters. And that's something that I heard a lot. It's an important issue, but it's not the only issue. Okay, but I remember it wasn't really that long ago that climate change was not so much on the radar for most voters. How have you seen that change? Well, it has grown for both Democrats and Republicans for about the past decade. Polls generally show Democrats particularly rank climate as one of their top issues, if not the top issue. Republicans tend to rank it lower in importance, but young Republicans are seeing it as an issue of higher priority. That might be partly because the impacts of climate change have been more immediate, like wildfire smoke affecting air quality, record high temperatures, and rising utility costs that make climate a pocketbook issue. Okay, so that's what polling tells us, which of course, polling is a snapshot in time that then informs party strategy. But what do we know, if anything, about how this translates to actually the way people vote? Mm -hmm. So despite signing sweeping legislation to address climate change, Biden isn't necessarily pulling in more votes yet on just that. In fact, a lot of younger climate activists are frustrated by some of his policies. Thousands took to the streets of New York this weekend, for example, to demand Biden do more on climate. A lot of them angry at his approval of the Willow Project, a major oil development project in Alaska. And they say that it's an example of the president walking back on his promises. Still, those that I was able to speak to said that they are likely to vote for Biden anyway, even if they're not happy with him. Anthony Lazowitz, director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, warns that the president shouldn't count on these voters, though, either. There is a block of voters who may, and of course our crystal ball is very cloudy, but who may decide either, well, most likely to just not vote, to stay home. And that would, of course, be incredibly damaging to his re-election prospects. Enthusiasm is low, especially among the youngest potential voters. For Republicans, though, it's becoming important to simply just talk about the issue. Having a position on climate won't lose you any voters, but not having a position on climate change will. That's Heather Reams with Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. She warns that conservatives should be could be leaving votes on the table in these close elections, so they need to be a part of the national dialogue. So if you're silent on the issue, where a lot of Republicans were, it's now becoming a detriment. Both parties have some work to do to appeal to these voters. Last thing, it sounds like it's kind of a mixed bag there when it comes to whether climate change is actually motivating voters. Is that how you see it? 
It is. You know, and turnout among young voters and Democrats can also make a difference in swing races. And we aren't just talking about presidential swing states, the House, state legislature and local government races where just a couple votes can make the difference. So climate change could still be a marginal issue. And we've seen marginal issues really matter in side elections. NPR's Jimena Bustillo. Thanks. Thanks. The most electrifying team in college football this season, it's the University of Colorado. The Buffaloes won just a single game last year. This year, they are already 3-0. They're the talk of the sporting world, thanks to their flashy new coach, Deion Sanders, and a whole new roster of players. The team's success has also been a huge boost to local businesses, as Colorado Public Radio's Tony Gorman reports from Boulder. Colorado coach Deion Sanders is making a believer out of everyone in the college football universe this season. What's up, boss? You believe now? You, you, hold on, hold on, hold on, oh no. Do you believe now? So much so, the CU home games are some of the hottest tickets around. For the first time in 27 years, season tickets are sold out. And that means the resale market is soaring. The nosebleed sections are going for hundreds of dollars and front row seats more than 15,000. Even students are having a hard time. CU freshman Eli Jason was one of the lucky ones. He won a student sports pass through a lottery. The best place in the country right now. Most hype in the world. No one knows what's happening right here besides what's happening in Boulder. The Buffaloes game Saturday against in-state rival Colorado State a thriller won by Colorado in double overtime was more like a Hollywood affair. The nation's top recruits, former NFL players, and celebrities all showed up. It's part of the prime effect. Sanders, known as Coach Prime, continues to garner national media exposure every week. The excitement and economic boom have always followed Sanders, when he coached Jackson State in Mississippi, the region saw a huge boost. The Tigers football team brought in $30 million to the city in 2021, almost double the season before the pandemic. Are you finding everything all right, ma'am? Yes. Okay, perfect. Boulder is already seeing it too. Where the Buffalo Roam, a souvenir shop, saw a huge spike in sales when Sanders was hired. Store manager Chandler Parker says they're constantly restocking CU merchandise. Essentially, since the first win of the season, our business has gone up at least, I would say, 50 to 60 percent on, especially like on game days. This was featured on ESPN this morning. Over on University Hill, a line pours out the door of the sink. The restaurant has been around for a century. Co-owner Chris Heinrich says he hasn't been this busy since he purchased the sink in 1992. And we started seeing people come in on Thursday night this week, even though it's a kind of a local game playing CSU. And, you know, we expect people to be around uh, all the way into Monday. Even Coach Prime is getting in on the action. He launched a line of custom-made sunglasses by Blenders last week that got a boost when Colorado State's coach criticized him. Sanders, who is known for wearing hats, hoodies, and sunglasses to his press conferences, responded by giving his players their own sunglasses. These are the shades. I'm going to give you these. <laughs> Sanders said Blenders made $1.2 million in sales in one day. Those shades came out just in time because Sanders wants his team to enjoy the spotlight. 
And as long as Coach Prime is at CU, Boulder will too. For NPR News, I'm Tony Gorman in Boulder. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening to us this evening. And we hope you'll wake wake up to us tomorrow to hear about a major accusation Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has made against the government of India. Trudeau says there are credible allegations that link India's government to the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. The victim was a prominent Sikh leader who India had called a terrorist threat. That story and much more tomorrow on Morning Edition. We could be in for at least another inch of rain before midnight tonight. Our flood watch continues until 2 a.m. Temperatures about 60 for a low. Tomorrow and Wednesday should be way different. Sunny, breezy, dry both days on the chilly side or chillier side with temperatures in the low to mid 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR, 65 degrees at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Mom, committed to protecting your intellectual property one idea at a time. Learn more at davismalm.com. D A V I S M A L M.